Hey, if you could make your way back in and find a seat, because there's not many. Come on in. One of the privileges that we have as a church is to be able to partner with missionaries around the world. And what we want to do is about once a month, just kind of highlight one of those missionaries and be able to pray for them together as part of a body. Uh, I recognize that if you're like my wife and I, you probably are actually praying for our missionaries on a regular basis. But I thought it would be good for us to kind of remember. This morning, we want to remember Jonathan and Danny Bowden. Uh, when they first went over to Niger, West Africa, they actually went with two children. Now they have four. Their family has grown, and they're doing a tremendous work in a nation that is predominantly Muslim, even what would be considered radically Muslim, in the sense that they can become very angry and violent about issues within their own faith. So we want to be able to pray for them. And these are the things that they've specifically asked us to be praying about. We contact them. We stay in contact with them regularly. But we specifically contact them, asking that they would let us know what they would like. Uh, they, one of the things that they do is they actually have a Bible school in which they are training young men and women, to do the work of the ministry, to be pastors in the surrounding area. So they're asking us to be praying for them as they begin their new school year, and that many of those people who are being trained would be released to go into the villages where they would serve. They have many people where they have done evangelistic crusades. Many have come to them and said, our village now has a small body of Christians. We need a man or a woman who will be a pastor. So they need pastors. The other thing they need are missionaries, other workers who will come in and help them in the training so that the work can then grow exponentially. They're also praying for peace in Niger because it has been a somewhat um, violent year there in the nation, and then health and strength for them and for the workers. So would you take a moment, just bow your heads. I'm going to leave them up on the screen so that you can actually see them if you want to glance up real quick, and then I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for uh, Jonathan and Danny and their whole family. Thank you for the depth of their faith and the sincerity of their servanthood. Lord, as we have been able to join with them over these years, every time I'm with them, I am more and more convinced that this family just is an amazing family, does a great job serving you and serving the kingdom of God. So we pray, God, your blessing upon them as they begin their new school year. We pray, God, that your hand would rest upon them and that there would be many who would come to be trained and that they would not only receive knowledge, but there would be an impartation of your presence and of your grace. And we pray for many of them to be released back into the field to serve, to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, to raise up many within that nation who will be Christ followers. We pray for other workers to come on the field to help Jonathan and Danny. Workers from the states or from other countries who would come and to help serve in training, to teach in Bible school and to go out into the villages and to preach and to teach. And then we pray, God, for peace, health, and strength to be upon all of them. Peace in the country, peace in Marathi, their home village, their home city, and then health and strength, God, for them personally as they serve you. We pray, God, your grace to rest upon Jonathan and Danny and their entire family as they continue the work in Niger, Africa. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Amen. How many of you remember where we are at in our study? What, what book are we even studying? Haggai. Uh, we have now looked at the first of two chapters. We've looked at chapter one. Uh, and remember now the context. These were a people that probably, if you were to have asked them, would have said they felt like they were living under a curse. These were people who felt like everything they put their hand to was going wrong. They didn't have enough of anything. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough clothes. They didn't have enough money. And they didn't have enough hope. Nothing that they were doing seemed to be working. And because of that, they began to wonder, what's the deal? They, they went back to their own homes and began to work on fixing things up. And then God sends along a prophet by the name of Haggai who says to them, do you want to know why things aren't working well? The reason why you don't have enough is God is actually coming against you. God is causing everything to dry up around you because you have lost the one true priority in life, which is why we started this series looking at shifting our priorities. It's the realization that God is either number one. I said to you a couple weeks ago, God's not willing to play second fiddle to anyone. God's either number one, he's either everything, or he's not your God at all. Uh, one of the church fathers in the third century, his name is Origen, said this, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. And the question that Haggai raises for us is who is your God? Or what is your God? What is it that you most admire? What is it that you're putting your time and your energy into? So God comes with his prophet Haggai and he challenges them to make God their priority. Make God number one. And in that case, it meant going up to the mountains, cutting timber, bringing it down, and building God's house. We saw that in chapter one, the people not only heard the exhortation of Haggai, they actually obeyed it wholeheartedly. They went back to work building God's house. In chapter one, we dealt with the fact that there was a struggle, an issue for the people, and it's called disinterest. They were disinterested in doing the work of the Lord because they were more concerned with taking care of themselves, taking care of their own families, their own houses, their own well-being over God. And God comes and he confronts that. But in chapter 2, God's beginning to deal with something different because the people have been working for a while now. They have been at it for a while, and things don't seem to be getting better very fast at all. And I feel like, uh, as I was preparing this week, I feel like chapter 2 is kind of our chapter. It's the people saying, I've made the decision to follow Jesus. I've made the decision to make God my priority, to make God number one in my life, but things don't seem to be going better. In fact, sometimes things seem to be going worse. I've made the hard decision. You know, maybe for you, it's the hard decision about your marriage. You know, in this culture and in this society, even within the church, it's really easy just to give up on your marriage. But you've made the hard decision to stick with your marriage, to try your best, but it seems like no matter what you do, 
it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Maybe for you, you've decided to stop lying to Uncle Sam and actually fill out your taxes morally. You actually aren't claiming things you shouldn't be claiming, and you're only claiming those things you should. You've decided to be a better citizen. And yet it seems like no matter what you do, between the federal government and Governor Como, more and more of our money is being taken. It doesn't seem like things are getting any better. You can't save anything. Or maybe for you, you've decided to become an honest employee. You've been working hard for a while, and you know, for a while you took some liberties, and you said, well, the boss doesn't care, I'm sure, because I see everybody else doing it. But you've made the decision now that you're not going to do that anymore. You're actually going to try to live uprightly, even with your boss, and give him a full day's work. And yet it doesn't seem to be recognized. It doesn't seem to be getting better. In fact, others who are actually cheating the boss, and you know it, are the ones who are being promoted. Here in chapter 2, these were God's people, and they were confronted with their bad priorities, and so they make God their priority, but things don't seem to get better. And so the question of chapter 2 is this, and this is my question to you. What's the deal with God's promises and blessings? Where are they at? Do we have anything we can count on? Are there any guarantees at all with this whole deal of following God? God. And I want to say this to you, and again, these are my wording. I'm sure others can say it better, but this is what I came to today. God promises that every time, every single time you choose to do what is right in his eyes, it will work out better for you. Let me say it again. God promises, God promises that every time Every single time you choose to do what is right in his eyes, it will work out for you better. The question is, when? When will it work out better? The people were saying, God, we chose to go up to the mountain. We're cutting down trees. We're bringing timber down. But when are things going to change For the better. In chapter one, we dealt with disinterest. As you can see, in chapter two, we're dealing with discouragement. With discouragement. Haggai comes along with a word of encouragement in chapter two, and he says, I know you've chosen to do better. You've chosen to change and to follow God's ways, and it's still tough. But don't give up. God has some promises yet for you. Let's look at it in chapter two, if you would. Chapter two. And again, the question that God is asking us today is, are God's promises, is God's promise to you enough? Even if it takes a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, now, before we go any further, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 1. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 1. When does the setting happen? Somebody help me. Say it again. And, keep going. Six month, first day. Chapter 2, verse 1. What are we? Seventh month, 
21st day. So you've got six or seven weeks have gone by. Some time has passed, and they have gone up to the mountain. They have cut down timber. They have brought it down, and they have been building God's house. And they were probably, by this time, getting a little bit weary, tired. Physical labor can be hard. You're going up to the mountain. You're cutting trees down. You're cutting them into timber, and you're bringing them down, and you're building. You get weary. And when you get weary, you are ripe for discouragement. When you get tired, just tired. You can feel like things just aren't going to go well. My wife and I have been sitting in the hospital now for this week. Uh, and again, I don't know how many, how many of you ever had to just sit in the hospital for a while? Isn't it true that there's something wrong with the air in the hospital? I don't know what it is, but I can work all day and be less tired than sitting in there for eight hours. It's wearisome. And while you sit there and you wait, it can feel sometimes like, is this thing ever going to get any better? I mean, they brought her in saying, this is serious, and yet here we are, and they still can't figure out what's going on. And that's kind of what the people were feeling like. God, we're doing our best. We're doing the loving thing, the prioritized thing. But it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. But here's something else you need to take note of. When it talks about the seventh month and the 21st day, that would make it, the seventh day of one of their major feasts called the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the feasts that God actually mandated for the children of Israel way back in Exodus and Leviticus. It was one of the three main feasts that every Jewish person had to attend to. And basically what it was was the recognition that when they were in slavery in Egypt, God came and rescued them but they had to walk through the wilderness for 40 years to get to their promised land. And for 40 years, they basically lived in tents. So God established this feast, this celebration, to remind them that they used to live in tents. So it's also called the Feast of Tents. But also to remind them that God had rescued them. So this is all about God's mercy. The fact that you're a sojourner in the land. This world is not your home. You need to remember that. And that's what this whole feast was about. So while they come and they're working on the temple, they also had this feast of tabernacles, a reminder that God had come out of his mercy and kindness and he had rescued them. But at the same time the feast of tabernacles was going on, they also had a concurrent feast called the Feast of Ingathering. At the beginning of the year in the spring, they had another feast about the planting of their crops. But now it's all about harvest. This is about God's abundance and God's provision. God's kindness to them that they would have enough. So here they are. They've been in a land where there's been a drought. God has dried up everything. And it takes a while for that to get undone. But they've been serving for six or seven weeks and things don't seem to be getting any better and they're beginning to wonder. But what makes it worse is this is supposed to be a time when... It, it, let, let me put it like this. If during Thanksgiving when you're supposed to celebrate God's goodness to you by having a turkey and you have no money this year for turkey, that's kind of what the people felt like. It's Christmas and they have no money for gifts. So what's supposed to be a time of celebration is a reminder to them that things just are not going right. Instead of a day of rejoicing, it's a day of discouragement and depression. Verse 2. 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, he's talking about the temple, which is starting to be rebuilt. But remember, these people had been in captivity for 70 years. So many of them had never even seen Solomon's temple. But there were some old-timers that were still around. There's always some old-timers that tell you about the good old days. You know what it used to be like when they used to walk uphill to school every day, both ways, in six feet of snow? There's always those old-timers that while the work's going on, they're muttering under their breath, saying, this thing doesn't look anything like what it used to look like. There's no way with us that it's ever going to get done. And so they're stirring up a level of discontent, so much so that God comes to the prophet and says, does this seem like nothing to you? He's heard their mutterings. Now, if you back up a point in time, one of the things that it's important for you to realize is that the rebuilding of the temple and the return of God's people to Jerusalem actually came in stages. It was over a period of time. So they had first come back, and if you go into the book of Ezra, they actually had begun work They came back, they're all excited, they began work, they rebuilt the wall around the city for its safety, they rebuilt the altars where they could make sacrifices, and the scripture tells us they had actually finished the foundation of the temple already. But then because of discouragement, they quit working. For 15 years, they quit working. In fact, listen to this, this is out of Ezra chapter 3, I don't know if I put it up there, I did, okay. Ezra chapter 3. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the son of Asaph with his symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. What he's basically saying is you have a contrast. You have the young who came in and they were all excited, but then you have the old who wept because they realized it would never be as good as it used to be. And because of discouragement and because of opposition, they had quit working for 15 years until Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, came along to encourage them to go back to work. And that's what Haggai does. Haggai challenges them and he says, come on, I know this is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. I know it's the Feast of Ingatherings, but keep working. God actually has a promise for you. Look at it in verse 4. Yet now... Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. And you can just imagine the people saying, is that it? Is that all we get? That's the best you can do, Haggai? 
be strong and work? What do you think we've been doing for these weeks? Verse 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. What Haggai is reminding the people is that God made covenant with them. And he didn't promise them it would be easy. He promised them he would be with them. And that's the question that comes. He didn't say everything would go perfectly from now on. Many people come to Christ assuming that Jesus is going to save them and make everything work well from then on. But that's not his promise. His promise is, I will be with you. In John chapter 15, his promise is, if you will abide in me, I will abide in you. His promise in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission is, if you will fulfill the Great Commission, if you will follow me and make disciples of all nations, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What I want you to hear today seems like it's a repeat, but actually Haggai's going to take that repeat and build upon it. God's promise to us is very simply this, himself. God promises you God. And my question is, with all that you're going through, with things not working out the way you anticipated, with the struggles that you have in your life, is that promise enough for you? His reward for following him? His compensation for leaving all and going after him is him. Is that enough for you? You know, some of you started coming to church because you like the music. I've had people tell me that. The reason why we come to this church is when we first walked in the door and we saw you had a drum set center stage, you have a keyboard, you have guitarist, lead guitarist, rhythm guitarist, you have it all going and they sing pretty good. We come to church because we love the music. For some of you, you came because you like the friendships. There were people that were at a similar stage in life, whether it be, you know, maybe you're in the parenting stage or maybe you're in the empty nest stage, but you found somebody that you could connect with and you liked the friendships that that afforded to you. Some of you even came and have told me you liked the preaching once in a while. Some of you came because you came at a time in which you needed assistance and the church reached out and helped you in some way. And so you started coming to the church because, again, you got something out of it. You got friendships, or you got good music, or you got preaching, or you got assistance, whatever it is, you got it all. But down in the depths of your being, there is this underlying question. Ultimately, what do I get out of all of this? I've given up all to follow Jesus. What do I get? Um, if I choose to follow Jesus with all my heart, is he going to change all this stuff that's been going on around me? that I don't like, that I'm uncomfortable with, that I'm unhappy with? Is he going to make it all right? I know uh, I was listening to a friend recently who said something like this. And again, I'm sure I'm not getting the wording right, but it was something like this. I understand a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. I understand he's the redeemer and he saved me from my sins. But what else do I get out of it? That's what he said. You don't get it if God's not enough. Because ultimately, that's his promise to you. That's his only promise to you, by the way. 
He doesn't promise you other stuff. He doesn't guarantee you other stuff. He promises you that. You get him. Some of you came to Christ because you didn't want to go to hell. That's why I came. Somebody preached and I got scared of going to hell, so I came to Christ. Some of you got saved because you wanted your sins forgiven and you wanted to go to heaven. And that's why, that's what you feel like you get out of it. I get my sins forgiven. All of that might be true. I'm not arguing it. Although I got to admit that at my age in life, at my stage in life, I don't even know what heaven's going to look like anymore. I used to think it was a bunch of people floating on clouds, playing harps and eating forever. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like anymore. I hope it doesn't look like that, honestly. I hope it's a little bit more fun, a little bit more active. I'd like to do something. But regardless of that, there are people who come because they want immediate benefits. I want something out of this, and I want it right now. What's in it for me here and now? I've been pastoring a long time, and I have people come into my office, and although they might not use these exact words, they say something like this. If I follow Jesus and am the kind of person I should be, will God fix my marriage? If I smile more often and make the foods that he likes, and I don't argue over him watching football, will you make my husband come back to me? If I stop yelling so much at home and actually help in the kitchen and hold her hands when we walk through the mall, you know, the thing every guy hates, if I do that, will you make my wife love me? In other words, whether we admit it or not, many of us are trying to make bargains with God. We're saying, if I do this, will you give me that? Well, what about my kids, Pastor? Won't God, didn't he promise that he would do my kids? No, the promise is God. God. Just God. Can't control your kids. Um, There's a lot of things I would love to give you as a guarantee. But I think the best guarantee is the guarantee that God gives us in Haggai. God says, I will give you me. I will be with you. And the question is, is that enough? I've had people say, if I'm really good and I quit smoking and drinking and swearing, will God finally make me healthy? I don't know. He doesn't promise that. He promises you himself. Is that enough for you? Sometimes I hear people talking about God failing them, that they're disillusioned with God. But in order to be disillusioned with God, you have to first have an illusion about God. Do you know the one true God and what he has declared in his word? God is the one who said, in this world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have struggles in this world. But be of good cheer, I have overcome. I can make this guarantee. God won't make everything easy. But if you choose to follow God, I can promise you it will work out better for you in the end. I don't know when the end is but it will work out better for you in the end. Making a decision to do the right thing solely because you know it pleases God will always work out better for you, even if not in this life, in that life, the life that is to come. Because you do realize that this life is just a blip in the scope of eternity. 
And what we do here does matter for there, but we always keep there in mind. God only promises you himself, but the interesting thing is God actually takes it a step farther in Haggai. See, in the end of chapter 1, God said, I'll be with you. He repeats it again in chapter 2, but then he goes a step farther. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, and it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. God promised them that this temple that they were rebuilding still sitting in ruins, foundation largely done, but still incomplete. He says that temple is going to be filled with glory and with peace. And I want to suggest to you that that promise of God came true. Every bit of it came true. 500 years later. But it came true. You see, we want God to do things on our timetable. This temple that they were building, that they had laid bare for 15 years doing nothing, they go back to work. Five years later, they dedicated the temple. But it was only 500 years later that in about 20 B.C., a guy by the name of Herod the Great, who was made governor over Judea, over all of that region, decided he wanted a better-looking temple. So he reconstructed Solomon's temple and made it even bigger and better than what Solomon had. But that was 500 years later. We want to see immediate results. You know, if I were to tell you that this church is going to have so many people coming in from other places, other nations are going to fill this house so much so that we're going to have to build a building out in the back field to accommodate them. And that this sanctuary, this small sanctuary, is actually going to become the church offices to handle the staff that we needed. That might make some of you happy. But what if I told you that would happen in the year 2500? Are you willing to sow into that, to believe for that, knowing that what God has promised is going to come to pass. It's going to be true. Notice that God says the temple will be greater than the former temple, but then he says people will come seeking the desire of all nations. That's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. So that ultimately, the fulfillment of God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus himself, who was the glory of God who came and filled the temple. In fact, the ultimate fulfillment doesn't occur until the end of all time. In Revelation, it says this, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and they shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God has promised the temple will be filled with his glory, and it will be. 
But what we get is His presence. I don't know what you're looking forward to in heaven. I don't know. I've had people say to me, I can't wait until my body is healed and I can do whatever. I want to find out if you can fly. I've had people say all kinds of things over the years. But the thing that's going to matter the most to us is Him. He is the center of it all and always has been and always will be. Till God be God and all. I know that for some of you today, you're here and you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with physical sicknesses, issues in your own body, disease, infirmity. I want to say to you, it won't always be like that. Some of you have lost loved ones just in this last year. And you're sorrowing and you're grieving. But there will be a day when your sorrow and your grief will be put away. That's God's promise. Every night when Karen and I lay down, um, I shouldn't say every night. I would say 99.9% of the time because there's always that one odd night when I am so tired I just don't have it in me. I just say, God, you know. Uh, but generally speaking, every night we pray for you guys. We pray for our kids. We pray for our kids and our grandkids by name. And some of them are struggling with some physical things. Some of them are struggling with decisions that need to be made. We pray for you guys. We go through a list in our minds. Uh, and every once in a while we'll take one away because they're seeming to do better for a while or we'll add one as they have need. We pray for the different ones in the church. Uh, for Catherine for Judah, for Frank and Connie and Art and Jean and their struggles, for Ashley, for Chelsea. We pray for all of them, for you guys on a regular basis, knowing that you have physical challenges. And we want God to touch you. But most of all, we pray that God would be with you, that you would know the reality of God's presence, his peace, and his glory. I can't promise that you'll get better. Not on this side, but I can promise you his presence that you can know the nearness of the living God. I can't promise everything in your life that you have been struggling with will go away because now you've made the decision you're going to actually live right. I can promise you that if you will choose to follow him, you will get him. You will get God's presence. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's the recognition. We go through stuff. The old hymn that we used to sing years ago went like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what this is about. That's what Haggai's about. It's saying, you know, all of your New Year's resolutions, all of your commitments to go to the Y and work out, all of that stuff that you're going to get better at, ultimately doesn't mean a thing if God is not first and foremost your priority. As Christians, most often I hear Christians say things like, well, yeah, God is number one. God's number one. And then my marriage is number two, and my family is number three, and my health is number four, and then my work is number five. But I want to suggest to you that at the point where you feel like you have the authority to determine number two, you have just usurped number one. Because ultimately, God is either one and all, or he's not your God. God's the one who gets to determine your daily priorities. There have been times, I can remember, uh, when we were in our very first church. And it had snowed much like this. It was in the week. Uh, John was probably maybe three years old at the time. I can't remember. But it had snowed. And so I took Jonathan outside, and we began to make a snowman. 
we were in a small church, a church of about 30 people, 40 people maybe, in Sterling, New York. And so it was during the day. I worked every day, but uh, I thought, it's snowing out. I'm going to take my son out. Somebody drove by and called me that afternoon and said, we don't pay you to build snowmen. Now, I, I wasn't smart enough at that time. I wish I was. Uh, I just said, okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I went on with my life. I wish I'd been smart enough to say, oh, you're so wrong. That's exactly what you pay me to do. You pay me to obey the voice of God. And God told me to go out and build a snowman with my son. Maybe God will tell you to go out and build a snowman with your kids today. Maybe God will tell you to take your wife out for lunch. I don't know. But my point is it starts with God. What is God saying? Is God your priority? There's no bargaining or negotiating with God. When you come to the kingdom of God, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. That's what you get. You get God. I can't promise you everything will change, but I can promise you that if you will follow him, you can have his presence. In fact, some of these things maybe won't change. We were in the hospital yesterday, and there was someone very, very, very sick next door, and it was very loud, very loud. And uh, even with the doors closed, you could hear it loud and clear. And the nurse was in there, and I just made some joke about, you know, please go next door, help that poor person. She goes, well, it's her own fault. She did it to herself. Well, the truth is some of the stuff we go through, we do to ourselves. I can't promise you that because you follow him, it will all change in a moment. But I can promise you, you can have his presence. No matter what you're going through, you can have the presence of God. You can have his glory in your life if you will open your eyes to see him. Either God is all, or he's not God at all. He's your all. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I love God, but I want to do my own thing. It's no, I love God, and I'm going to follow him doing it his way in his time, whatever he calls me to. If you say yes to God today, you get God. That's kind of what Haggai does. Haggai starts in chapter 1 and reminds the people of their priorities. And in chapter 2, he takes a step farther. He says, not only do you get me, you get peace and you get glory. That's what you get as you choose to follow God. Would you stand with me? Can't promise you that everything will get better, but I can promise you that you will have his peace, his presence, his joy. The fruit of his spirit will be yours. Father, I thank you for each one that's here today came out on this snowy day. And I thank you, Father, for your word that you came through Haggai. I know, Lord, that this has been a word for me personally. And I believe it's been for these, your people as well. That when we choose to follow you, we get you. It doesn't guarantee that everything else around us that we don't like will change immediately. But we know that if we choose to follow you with all of our hearts, in the end, it will work out better for us. And Lord, sometimes in your mercy and kindness, you cause it even to work out better for us in this life. And we're ever grateful. But we're going to follow you no matter what. We have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's our cry, Father. That you would be Lord of all in our lives and in this house. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Drive safely, please. Go slow.